0: Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from Seedcamp. I'm here sitting in Balderton's offices in London. And one of the greatest things about this office, if you've ever been, is that it is situated near a train station. So if you hear trains going by, um, that's what what that is. Uh, We're not being invaded or anything like that. Um, Today's guest is Saranga, and Saranga uh, is is a a recent addition to the Balderton team. He joined in 2014. But he comes with a a great legacy of entrepreneurship. Uh, He's he's worked in in companies uh, that preceded his own, and we'll get into that in a second. Um, But he took a company in 2004 to 2007 uh, public uh, called Blinks, and we'll hear about that in a second. But let's kick things off, Srenger, with a little bit about kind of your background. You studied computer science? Yeah, that's right. And um, did you – the first role that you took – had it anything to do with what you studied? Yeah, it did, it did. Um, so I graduated in 2000, yeah. um, right at the
1: peak of the dot-com boom, um, and uh, I had two competing offers actually. One was from Morgan Stanley, <laughs> to be a, a banker essentially, um, an a- analyst in their, in their internet division, and the other offer was from a company called Trilogy, which was a software company based in Austin, Texas. Um, I, I went to university here in the UK, but this is a, an American company. Um, and it was a big, big um, question for me whether I go into the sort of traditional, um, you know, route that many, many sort of British graduates go into, which is the banking route and the financial services, or whether I take a bit more of a risk and go into tech. Um, but I'd obviously spent the last three, four years at college um, reading and believing in all of the exciting stuff that was going on in tech. And being a computer scientist, it felt like that was the thing to do. So I I, I left the country and I moved to Austin, Texas, and, and took that job.
0: Wow. Okay. And, and what was that? What was that first experience like for you? Was it what you expected, or did you kind of feel like you had sold your soul?
1: Yeah. No. I. I um, it felt absolutely great. So i have done an internship in banking um, previously, and I wouldn't use a phrase as strong as sold your soul, but I. <laughs> I definitely um, struggled a bit with the with the fact that although it seemed very lucrative and I could see why it was valuable, and why it was intellectually interesting, I didn't feel you know passionate about it. Um, when I went to Trilogy, um, you know, a tech company, I got really passionate and I could see how even though they were actually in a fairly sort of um, behind the scenes part of enterprise software I got very excited about what was happening and I think it was just the fact that you know i had been a technical person for a very long time and this may sound weird to some of your younger founders who've always lived in a world like this but you know I knew a lot about computers and it had always been this very niche thing that people didn't necessarily always see the value of or understand why it was interesting and um, to finally be in an environment in in the US in particular where people were beginning to understand how important this wave of technology was going to be to everything that we did in our lives and and to be in a company full of that kind of stuff
0: was very exciting. No that's great and so tell us a little bit about the transition between Trilogy and, and the next jump because did you go from there yep. straight into autonomy or? Effectively
1: yeah okay. I mean so uh, that was probably the most important transition of my life um, because um, it happened by being laid off um, so I worked for Trilogy for about four months um, and it was really exciting and really um, enthusiastic and, and looking back on it now, um, very American um, and very sort of optimistic and forward-looking. Um, and then I will never forget that, you know, four months in, we were all ushered, the entire um, company was ushered into a um, hotel ballroom in downtown Austin. Um, and those of us who just joined the company had no idea what was about to happen. Um, but there was this kind of weird sense of foreboding as you walked into the room and the CEO stood up at the front of the room and started this speech, um, he broke down in tears halfway through the speech and said, I'm really, really sorry. It's all ending. You have to go. Most of you have to go. And then he ran off uh, to the back of the stage um, and and um, the doors at the back of the room literally opened and we all filed out and we all had these little, you know, these little cards you had to pick up with your name on it and each card had a time and a place and you had to go to that time and place, a meeting room back in the office later that day or later the, the next day. Um, and you were told in 15 minutes whether you were staying or not. And two-thirds of the company was laid off in in one day.
0: And and Trilogy, how much money had they raised at that point?
1: Um, That's a great question. I don't know for certain. It it would have been in the tens of millions of dollars. Um, It was a large business um, that was selling um, uh, enterprise configuration software, but they had also invested literally, I would say, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars in new startups. So their their big thing was to take um, the sort of core business that was throwing off a lot of cash, And try and invest that in you know really smart really um, fresh young teams of both business and tech people trying to come up with whole new ideas and they had a whole bunch of you know five or six kind of incubated startups effectively Um, one of which was on the track of going public Um, two or three others were sort of you know leaving the fold and becoming business of their own and that was kind of what drew people like me to it, was this idea that you could learn from people who built a real business, but then also have the freedom to go and start your own thing as well, um, which seemed like a really amazing combination. Um, unfortunately, it was a model that required a lot of, you know, external capital funding the the party. Um and of course funding capital stopped suddenly in 2000, 2001, uh, which is exactly
0: when I was there and and, and the party ended. Um, so it was a really um, It's ironic. I this I went through the same thing. I was at Baltimore Technologies and I remember of course, yeah, yeah. being dragged into a series of yeah. the same situation that you went through. Yeah. But what lessons did you learn from like like hmm. now, yeah like to, to, to founders that you know might have to shut their company at some point? Like what what were the lessons that you learned from how that was managed and how that cash was managed and how that dismissals were managed and what would you do differently if, if, if you had been in charge?
1: Yeah. So, I, you know, I actually wouldn't do that much differently. I mean, I think the team there had been um, very aggressive in pushing for growth. I think that's what their investors and shareholders and frankly what their employees wanted. Um, I think that, you know, it was a shame that um, the CEO um, was so emotional that he couldn't finish his speech. That's kind of a little bit weak, I guess. But I also understand, you know, he took it very seriously and that's why he behaved the way he did. Um, and the company did an amazing job of trying doing everything it could in its power to ensure that all of us who left had um, you know as much of a positive experience as possible um you know they 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 had you know great packages for all of us they were really supportive about finding new jobs and everything else so i don 't necessarily fault any of that. What it really taught me was a lot about myself um you know i think it 's you know, I'm someone who, until that point in time, had really not failed much at all in life, um, you know, and I think it's really important to experience real failure. Um, you know, I vividly remember, you know, being extremely emotionally, you know, jarred by this whole experience, to put it lightly. Um, and, and it was just a key moment for me
0: to sort of understand that. This is in the U.S., right? Can yeah. I, can I add an additional question sure. to that, which is, were you on a visa? yes I was because I was in, this, in the same situation okay. so there was not only the emotional bit yeah. of, of failure or feeling like you know this yeah. thing ended but any emotional distress as well that yeah. you probably had associated with your life right? yeah
1: yeah exactly and and of course I was young and it was like I mean I'd only been there for a few months so I hadn't put down roots in the US but you're right so I you know had this meeting I think I lost my job technically about three or four days later and I had to leave the country effectively about a week after that you know um, and so um, and, 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 you know, it was a very, very stark reversal of fortune. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'll never forget it. And it, it, I think it, it taught me a lot about failure, about how it, failure is hard and that you don't want to go through it, but also that you can go through it and that you will survive. Um, and, it, and it gave me the confidence to say, you know what, I'm someone who is OK with failure. I love success. I drive for success. Um, I enjoy success, but I can live through failure if I have to. Um, and, and some people did you know, Some people who went through that, some of my colleagues who were alongside me at that time, took a different lesson and realized that they were not someone who wanted to see failure again, and they went on to join larger and larger companies with more and more secure futures uh, and have done you know, really interesting, great things and been successful in, in their own way. Um, but some of us had exactly the opposite reaction. And a bunch of people who come out of that experience have gone on to start really great, really interesting companies. Um, mm. So it's just really fascinating to me. The, the great thing about that experience for me is that it happened when I was really young. You know, I yeah. was 21, 22 at the time, and I could afford to have a failure like that and go away and kind of figure it all out. Um, it's much harder, of course, if you do it when you're older, have kids, have a mortgage or whatever. Um, but um, I, I think it, it was a very formative experience.
0: And then autonomy happened
1: how much after that? Yeah, so I joined autonomy probably about... Um, four or five months after that so I moved back to the UK because I had to (laughs) Um, and I kind of licked my wounds and hung out in Cambridge which is where I you know my college town and kind of where a lot of my friends still were Um, and then you know I was looking around for a job and I again was very tempted by the city and financial services Um, but then out of the blue autonomy reached out and I went and interviewed with them met with the CTO and co-founder I'm just, you know, and a bunch of his team, and just they were really smart people who were very, um, you know, again very driven. And I sort of thought, you know, I don't even really understand what these guys do, but you know, if people like this can be here and be happy, then I should, I'd be happy here too. And that, that's kind of what led me to join that firm.
0: Okay, so the, there was clearly a, a point of gestation there for Blink's yep. during that period while you were at Tonomy. So how did how did that come about? How did the idea come about? Because yeah. You know, and one of the things that I want to I, I want to touch on, and we mentioned earlier when we were talking, it's the issue of fundraising during that period as well. So, yep. like thinking about fundraising, thinking about mm-hmm. starting a company in that environment.
1: <clears throat> yeah. So, so Blink is a funny one. It, you know, we were a um, we were a spin-off from Autonomy. You know, effect, effectively. So, what happened was I was at Autonomy. I joined as a, a effectively an R and D kind of guy. I worked in the UK office on some pretty core R and D for a while. Um, I've always really enjoyed the commercialization of technology so I was doing that from from very early on and ultimately got put on the fast track to to move out to the US uh, because of all of that. Um, um, and the fact that I had a, a, a girlfriend who lived in the U.S. at that point also helped um, my, my thesis. So so I moved out to California, to San Francisco, which is where Autonomy was setting up its U.S. office, um, and Autonomy was going through a big sort of idea that you know, it was going to move a lot of its center of gravity to the U.S. because that's where the customers were, and ultimately that's where the company's future probably lay. Um, so I got to be part of that vanguard. So when I moved out there, we had a team of about probably 10, 15 people in tech, It grew to, you know, hundreds within the first two, three years that I was there. Um, And that happened both organically through hiring and inorganically through a few acquisitions. Um, So I got to sort of experience that crazy, um, rapid, rapid growth. Um, And then as I was doing all of that, you know, I was there doing all this in San Francisco and I was, of course, exposed to all of the interesting things that were happening in the Bay Area, even though this was the, you know, one of the worst times in the Bay Area, right, just just post the dot-com crash. um, But there was still a lot of creativity, still a lot of interesting people, and I caught the startup bug, you know, frankly. Um, and so we were working on a number of internal projects within autonomy. Um, one of the ones that I was kind of involved in was this idea of applying the technology to consumer media and new media and trying to figure out if there was a new market in that area. Mm. And that idea got a lot of traction internally. And we decided that it had so much traction that it should be its own thing. And so that led to, you know, trying to figure out how we you know, do that spin out. Um, we looked at maybe hiring a CEO and Uh, We looked at investment, we talked to venture firms, um, we also talked to Autonomy's own internal team about investment, um, and you know, a whole bunch of processes in that process ultimately led to the company being a separate entity from Autonomy um, and ultimately spinning out Actually, in the long run, we were funded by autonomy itself um, rather than by venture. It was very difficult to raise venture at the time, although we did have some interesting conversations. So I had a Yeah,
0: l- tell us a little bit about those interesting conversations. Are there anything yeah. like the ones that you have now?
1: Yeah, I don't want to name names <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it will be unfair and, and many of the people are still in the business. Um, but it's, it, it was interesting because I think what I saw there was um, some really smart people who understood what we were trying to do um, and who got it. And who were excited by what we were trying to do, um, but were were ultimately turned off by the fact that the market was generally in so much decline at the time. You know, it was a really difficult time to believe in investing in what was essentially a consumer uh, internet media company. Um, and I think that appetite changed dramatically over the over the following few years because Google IPOed in two thousand four, um, you know, and 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 you know the IPO as a stock did incredibly well, and then by sort of two thousand seven, when we IPOed, actually the market was raging again, you know. And I think that um, well, only to then subsequently, of course, and then a year <laughs> later again went back down again. So, so I think that. Um, it's funny, timing is so crucial in that, and that's the thing I learned there and, and I think even the smartest investors um inevitably um get dragged into the timing around them, whether that's you know positive uh, or, or you know bullish or, or or negative and bearish you know and and I think as an investor, you have to be really smart about trying to insulate yourself from that thinking um because I think you can overinvest at times of irrational exuberance and you can also underinvest in times of irrational. Um, whatever the opposite of exuberance is um, depression or you know recession so and i think we saw a bit of that at blinks um, and it's a shame because you know if anyone had invested then they would have seen a pretty insane um, turnaround you know um, investment um, return because we IPO'd at i think 250 300 million dollar valuation um, i don't you know who knows what the valuation would have been as a startup but it would have been a lot less than that only 3 4 years earlier
0: yeah no, that's an amazing turnaround time 3 4 years yeah and um, so during that period, you, you mentioned that you had 35 employees, Yeah. Right? yeah. So maybe, you know, the, the, um, that story, you know, those three years of compact history, yeah. you know, probably taught you quite a bit in terms of everything from the, the haunting memory of that CEO who's on stage firing everyone. Yeah. You, you probably had some moments like those, yeah. that fear, but then at the same time, you probably had a lot of glory moments. Can you walk us through some of the highlights?
1: Yeah, I mean the uh, you know it was a time of intense ups and downs and and very compressed into a very short period of time. I think that the the the, the big um, the big challenge was learning about whole new areas of business that I had no real experience in. Um, so you know I'm as I said before an engineer by background and training. I was very confident about the technology and product side of what we did, um, and I thought for a long time that I had to hire a quote unquote real CEO. You know. Uh, and we looked at that, and we actually talked to and even worked with a few people who could have been the real CEO, but my, me and the other team who sort of initially set up the project internally Autonomy never gelled strongly enough with any of these individuals to feel like they were the right person for us. Um, and so after a few years of trying and failing, um, eventually my board sort of said, I, I guess you've realized, Ranger that you're going to be the CEO. And I, I hadn't really realized, but that I sort of had to take on that mantle. Um, and that was challenging because there were things that I thought I didn't know about. I knew how to sell. I'd been involved in that before, but I was unconvinced about marketing. I was unconvinced about HR, unconvinced about finance. And I had to learn all those things very, very quickly. So that was probably the biggest challenge, was just learning all those things. And moreover giving myself the confidence that I was allowed to be an expert in those areas. Um, And um, I think, you know, equally the the positives were around the sense of achievement you get from figuring those things out and realizing that actually they're not as tough as you think. And one of the things that I'm actually very passionate about is, is trying to convince more technology people that they can do all these things. You know, there's been this Deep um, history of, of of technology people, particularly in Europe, particularly in the UK, thinking that somehow technology is very different from business. You know, and and I think that it's a, it's a shame that people think that way because if you look at some of the greatest tech companies in certainly in Silicon Valley, um, you know the the person who you know started the company and stayed in in charge throughout their success was a technology person. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is an engineer and he's still the CEO of his you know mo- you know behemoth of a company same with Bill Gates, you know, same with, you know, uh, countless, countless companies. And I think that, um, there, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, bit of a sense here in Europe and again, particularly in the UK where technology people sort of step aside and let a CEO take over and, 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 you know, it's okay to bring in other people around the table, but I think, you know, tech people really understand viscerally what their companies are about. And, um, you know, I, I was forced into that and yeah. kind of believe that now, and, and I hope more people do that in the future. Yeah.
0: How do you feel about, uh, some investors that might have a view on yeah. having a, a new CEO come in yeah. for a founder who might be young and yeah. might be immature in the, in the context of the business world. and you know This is something that yeah. you've probably heard yeah. I've definitely heard. What's your view on that now that, that you've lived through that yeah. and in the tail end of what you just said?
1: I, I, I find that a really weird opinion um, and the reason why I do is because if you're an early stage investor, I, I really think you are primarily investing in the people. Um, and if you're investing in the people, I don't know how you invest in a person to only turn around and say, well, I need to get rid of the person or, or change him or her out. Um, it just It's a sort of slightly odd calculus. I mean, of course, things can change. So I think over time, someone may, you know, may no longer be the right person um, or someone may change their opinion of whether they want to be the person. You know, sometimes people stuff can happen in your personal life and you can decide you don't want to be CEO anymore and that's fine. Um, and I can also I also think you can get it wrong. So I think you can invest in a company thinking someone's someone but then realizing over time that they are not and that's fine too. But it, it's it's odd for me to sort of invest in a company with the sort of ingoing thesis that you're going to switch the person out. Um, and, and I think the reason why I think it's dangerous is that, you know we live in a very fast changing environment um you know the 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 product it you know this sort of weird mentality that you get sometimes um that you know somehow you know r and d productization and then commercialization are boxes that happen in series you know not the case anymore everything is co- constantly iterating and it's constantly part of the same big blob whether you like it or not and if you can't you know think that way and if you can't think in that multi-dimensional way then I, I don't think you have a, you have any business being an early stage investor and and if you believe that it's iterator, iterating like that very rapidly then I think you need to have super technical people or super producty people involved in that core business um, you know driving it from day one of course, if they feel or you know aren't good at certain aspects of it, you should help them by having that input come in, in into the team as well. Um, so you know, a big part of what investors can do really well is is help build a team around a CEO if if, if they are very young and if they haven't had a chance to build that team out yet. Um, and, and I had some amazing people around me at Blinks who really helped me with that, who were all of whom were older than me and all of whom, you know, knew way more than I did about certain areas. Um, But I think that we benefited from the fact that we were able to move very rapidly uh, Mm. because we had that technology DNA very central to the the company.
0: And do you think that with a staff of 35, that your role would have had to change at some point had it gone on? I mean, to some extent, you said after IPO, you guys continue to grow and you scale a lot more. But at what point did you feel like you needed help or, or yeah. what, which were the inflection points for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there were inflection points uh, along the way. I think going from five up to something more than five was a big inflection point. Um, I think that um, going from sort of 25 to around 50 was a big inflection point and change. 50 to sort of 150 was a big change. Um and then 150 to sort of 300 was a big change. I I definitely felt less passionate about my job once we hit the 300-ish size. That's when I, you know, ultimately retired from the company. Um, you know, it, I spent a long time figuring out how to exit and worked with the board and found the right replacement and everything else. But I think that, um, you know, for me, you know, my passion, my energy is better in that smaller team. Um, not that I, can't be bigger teams um but i i think you want someone you want the ceo to be someone who who loves it you know and who who doesn't stop wanting to do it um and there are many great founders and ceos who've gone way bigger than that and will will continue to do so um but um but for me personally that was the point and so i think there's an importance to be self-aware there and and to know sort of what your limits are whether it's in your abilities or in your interests um and um and i think you need to sort of you know manage yourself there but um but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely one for giving CEOs the latitude to figure that out for themselves mm. because I think the good ones are, are more than capable of doing that. Mm.
0: And so, what, if you had to sort of summarize the top three lessons learned <laughs> uh, for founders from the Blink story, what what would you say? Like, if you sat down next to a founder who's just starting off his company, and said like these three things will spare you a lot of pain.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a that's a tough one to give out of the blue. Um, so I think. Um, let's see I think uh, the three big things so the first is believe in yourself I think that there is a lot of doubt in being a founder um, most founders I know including incredibly successful ones um, you know suffer from impos- imposter, um, uh anxiety which is this this psychological um, state that people get into where they feel like that um, where they feel like um, everyone around them Is taking them more seriously than they should and they worry that then they're not going to live up to the expectation Um, well the good news is you know everyone from Steve Jobs you know downwards has sort of suffered from a bit of that and and um, it's okay to feel that way Um, it's hard and I think it's important that you find a support network that can help you get through those psychologically tough periods of time Um, So that's one thing. Um, It's okay that you feel like that, Um, you know, by the way, it's a good sign, it means that you question yourself, and that's what you should be. Um, But make sure you have some balance to that, whether it's, you know, your partner, uh, or whether it's, you know, your parents, or friends, or even in your company, or a coach or whatever. Um, The second thing I will say is that um, your company, if it's successful, will grow, and not all of the people in your team will grow with it. Um, And you have to be good and quick at, at realizing that and making the changes you have to make. It's one of the toughest things, Um, but sometimes someone who was amazing for you when you were going from 10 to 100 people or 10 to 50 people is just the wrong person when you go beyond that. And and you need to be good at at, at managing them out or managing them into a different track. Mm. Um, And it's a really tough thing because people get very fixated with, well, I'm that role and I should always be that role. And and unfortunately, they may not be the right person for that role anymore. Um, The best way I found to do that is to be honest with them up front. So once I saw this happening a few times, I started to change my opinion on every time I hired someone, I would say to them, remember that I'm hiring you for this today. And I want you to grow into this and this and this. But you may not. And it's okay if you don't and if you don't you know we'll have to figure out what we do you know and and by the way that applies to me as well you know and it did apply to me and and you know firing myself was one of the hardest things i did but it was an important thing to do at that point in time and so i think that's a key thing is realizing that not everybody will grow forever um and you have to figure out a positive way of managing that issue um then the third thing i would i would i would say it's very important um you know, is 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 realised, particularly if you're the CEO, that your job is primarily a, a sales job. You know, um, whether it's to customers and partners, whether it's to investors, or whether it's to prospective or current employees, a big part of what you do is is communicate your vision and talk about what it is you're trying to do. Um, because generally speaking, you're building something, it's not yet built, and therefore you can't just point at it and say, look, it's obvious, right? When you become Google, then you'll be able to do that. You'll be able to point at the AdWords business model and say, look, cash keeps coming out of here, you know?
0: Yeah. And, and
1: you don't really need to say very much more. Until you are in that magical state, yeah. <laughs> and very few companies are, um, then, then, you know, you need to tell the story and explain why what you're doing matters and why it's going to change the world. Um, and that, that, that narrative and the way you say it, the way you do it, that's so key. Um, yeah. and, and I think there are a lot of um, you know, founders who sort of, who sort of shirk away from what they see as being a salesy thing. It, it's not sales. It's communication. Um, and realize that it's core to what you do.
0: Yeah, no, that's amazing advice. And to some extent, um, I'm, I'm curious how, that, how you apply that now with companies mm. you work with. Mm. But before we get, we get there, it's sort of the, your current role at Bollerton. Maybe you can share a little bit of kind of the first thing you did mm. once you kind of checked out and you had the spare time to sort of do whatever you want. What was the first thing off the bucket list you checked off?
1: Yeah, so um, the first thing um, that I did, um, which sounds maybe a little bit lame, is I did, um, a, 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 I did a full week of dropping my son off at preschool and picking him up at preschool. And I've never, ever done anything like that committed to my family ever before, you know, where, you know, I was just like, you know, to my wife, who also works you now, I'm, I'm going to drop him off every day and pick him up every day. And nothing is going to change that. Um, and it was awesome, you know. And, and um, you know, he was, he was a preschooler, so he was very young. But I felt, honestly, like our relationship got closer even in that one week, which seemed crazy to me. Um, and it just felt really good to have a different commitment. Um, because the thing is, when you do something like the thing I did at Blinks, you, you have to commit fully to that thing. It's very, very hard. I think impossible to have multiple commitments at that sort of stage. Um, you know, you owe way too much to your employees and you owe way too much to your shareholders to do anything otherwise. Um, and and it's, an, it's unhealthy, you know, uh, honestly, for, for long, long periods of time. But it's something that you can choose to do and something that I wanted to do and I did do for eight years. Um, but it was wonderfully, um, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of uplifting to remove myself from that commitment finally for, for even that first week.
0: Hmm. wow no, that's amazing and then how long were you on the sort of on the beach so to speak um, <laughs>
1: yeah um, I guess I was in San Francisco so I kind of almost technically was on the beach um, yeah, about two years so two I spent years. about two years um, and
0: did you just kicking around sort of projects or were you yeah
1: I did lots of things camping? I not, not, not grandiose things necessarily but we did take some really nice vacations but um, it was mainly around um, you know um, a slower pace of life um, you know uh, sort of a bit more uh, bit more Investment in myself, as it were, so uh, getting a bit healthier again, all that kind of stuff, physically, mentally. But for the big thing was, yes, I mean, really broadening my, my, um, sort of um, knowledge base around what was happening in tech. So this was in 2012, right? And um, tech had sort of re-accelerated post-2008 all over again. And yet I was bizarrely unaware of a lot of what was going on outside online video and advertising. Um, And so I rediscovered, you know, or discovered, um, you know, drones. I discovered, you know, social media in a big way. I discovered, um, you know, a whole bunch of interesting stuff going on in security and enterprise software and, you know, all these sorts of things. And so, combination of just meeting a lot of people, old friends, old employees who are now in these areas, um, did some investments, of course, um, you know, did some sort of non-profit type stuff, but again, very sort of tech oriented. So really just broadened myself um, and created much more of a portfolio of experiences from the very personal um, right up to the not so personal at all, but just different from what I was doing before.
0: Wow. Okay. And then, and then venture, so... <clears throat> Obviously now, um, having been here at Balderton for about a year or so, like what what was the attraction to to formalizing that I guess angel yep. investments you were making, and then transitioning that into an institutional fund back here as opposed to in California, mm-hmm. where you could have very easily probably have stayed and yep. had the relationships to to stay there. Yep. So wh- why why Europe, why Balderton, and 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 really kind of what what kind of things should people come to you for? Within
1: yeah. So I, um, you know, I, I basically began to love this ability to be broader and and be involved in entrepreneurship and technology companies um, at that very early stage, which I really enjoy and have a lot of passion for. And frankly, I think, hopefully, I think have you know a certain amount of kind of experience of. Um, but I also like being able to do that intellectually in a broader sort of set of projects than just one. Um, and I think ironically that gives me a lot of energy for each one um, because a change can be as refreshing as a rest right and that's what I found when I did this sort of multiple things in in, in the US. Um, So that's kind of why I started to think something like venture whether doing it with an official firm or doing it on my own personally um, was probably the future for me at least for a while Um, and then the reason why Europe was intriguing is you know I am European Um, I'm American too but I you know I originally I was European so it was interesting to sort of come back the idea of coming back, and I got and I started to spend more time back in Europe because I had time to do that, and I got really intrigued by how much better an environment it was than it was ten years ago when I'd left, um, and I also got really excited by what I saw as almost a startup opportunity all over again. You know, in some ways, European tech is a startup itself. You know, the Bay Area is actually pretty mature as a startup ecosystem. Um, you know what you do. It's kind of a fairly well-known sort of you know, hierarchy of who's who and what you do and how you go through it. And it's just very organized and a very liquid and very efficient market. Whereas here, it's a bit like the Wild West again. You know, there's a whole bunch of different ecosystems competing with each other, sometimes collaborating with each other. There's, there's a lot of people who don't really understand it. There's just opportunity in that. And and as a, as a startup guy, I like that. You know, I like, you know, having to kind of fly to random places. I like having to meet people in weird places. I like occasionally getting blown off by the you know the person you were trying to meet it that's sort of what I enjoy I I, I enjoy less being in a not blown
0: off in particular but
1: no but there's something in that there's something about the hunger that comes from needing to hustle to get into something you know and I think there's less of that in the Bay Area at times Um, especially if you're part of you know the, the the group of people who are sort of more in the game and kind of who you know who are more established and 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 I enjoy all of that a little bit. Um, and so I, I like the idea of coming back and sort of feeding part of that sort of more dynamic environment again. Um, and then, you know, a little part of me is also, you know, keen to hopefully share some of my network, some of my experiences in the Bay Area with the companies here, because many of them go on to spend a lot of their time in the future in the Bay Area or in the US generally, um, either to sell or to actually go and, you know, be based or whatever or go and raise money. And and I can hopefully help with a bit of that. And I think as a firm, we're very good at helping with that because we have a variety of US connections, thanks to our history and and the partners. Um, And so that's, you know, I I felt like it could be useful as well. So it's a combination of all those factors that led me to do what I do today.
0: Mm. Cool. And then, what what should people come to to you for? Like, what 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 would you say? Like, if yeah. if you're building X Y Z, yeah, you're the guy to speak to.
1: Sure. I mean, I I guess um, you know the, the 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 nice thing about our company is that or our firm is that we try to be very open minded about you know we we don't try to sort of over define particular. Business models or particular verticals, because we think that the the, the market is changing so rapidly that it, it you you're very quickly out of date if you do that. Um, so we, we invest across the board. I mean, we invest in everything from kind of musical hardware companies like Rolls. Like, oh, me personally, yeah, yeah personally, okay. personally, yeah, like, you okay, know, like
0: you really love drums. And yeah, the-
1: yeah, yeah. So I, again, I. I do honestly like lots of very varied things. Um, I think that where I areas that I know extremely well are, you know, ad and media technology because of my experiences at Blinks. So if you're interested in that market, um, you know, come and you know, you know, shoot the uh, shoot the shit with me. Um, you know, I, I I always love talking about that art area always love looking at new companies trying to figure out new ways of cracking that problem um, and it's a fascinating problem that's changing rapidly I'm also very interested in enterprise software companies um, you know I've worked in enterprise software for a long time in the old on-prem world but I stayed very close to that world as it migrated autonomy was one of the few companies that managed the migration from on-prem to SaaS fairly well when they were acquired by HP they were about I think about 50 50 you know cloud versus non cloud so I, I understood a lot about how that world worked and I continues to be very interested in that space for that reason. And then finally, because I'm an engineer, I'm interested in te- technical companies. You know, I'm interested in enterprise software, in, sorry, in enterprise infrastructure companies, mm-hmm. in companies that are building real tech, um, Interested in dev tools companies. Interested in um, you know um, uh, you know machine learning and sort of technical companies. because again this is sort of stuff that I studied a long time ago and have kept up to date vaguely with and and I think you know intellectually I kind of get very excited by that and it's an area that I think Europe has a lot of talent in but funnily enough the investment sort of um, ecosystem isn't so good at. Most of the investors we have in Europe are still mm-hmm. more from a finance background, and, and that's fine, and many of them are great investors, but but they perhaps don't have quite the same, you know, technical ability to sort of really get excited by some of those things. So mm-hmm. those are probably the areas that I'm interested in most.
0: Okay, so maybe as the last question to, to wrap things up, um, on that point of technical uh, founders and products that sometimes don't have revenue, yeah, one of the challenges that I constantly hear founders have in Europe is uh, investors who are waiting for the right level of traction, the right level of progress, yep. to, to put things uh, in motion. And unfortunately, that traction comes in the form of, you know, some MRR number. Mm-hmm. And what is your view on that, especially for products that are more like dev tools or or, yep. or, or you know products where the sales cycle is so long mm-hmm. that. Really, unless they raise that 800k, million, million, five round, yeah. it ain't happening for them in Europe and they have to go to the US. What's your view on that?
1: Yeah, so I I, I don't think, so I don't really have a bar on the MMR, MMR stuff. Um, you know, I think that if you are building a product that has, that lacks obvious technical barriers to entry, or huge product differentiation, then then yeah, you're in a game of execution. So you better show me MRR and, you know, the fact that actually what you're really good at is kind of executing and selling better than anybody else is. And there are companies that are like that out there, which I'm really interested in and really impressed by, who, you know, on on paper, you could say, well, you know, any good team of engineers and a couple of designers could build this thing. But you know what? Only these guys have managed to get it to take off the way it has. Um, and I think so, th- there's that kind of category. And if that's what you're building, then yes, you do have to have that kind of traction. On the flip side of the coin, there are companies I've talked to, who are, you know, there's a couple I'm looking at right now, who have absolutely no revenue whatsoever. And they won't have any significant repeatable revenue for, you know, another year. Um, but that's okay because what they're building is so technically complex that I genuinely believe that you know no one else is going to build that you know anytime soon. And I think that they've got it and they understand it. Um, but they have other ways of demonstrating traction, whether that's with mindshare, um, with the right developers or the right community that that, that matters to them. Um, or maybe it's not even traction. Maybe it's just more about the sheer brilliance of the product and, and kind of how smart it is. And and I think that you know we as a firm and certainly me as an individual try hard to be smart at being able to sort of make that kind of call and say, look, you know, maybe they haven't shown it to many people yet and they certainly haven't made any money yet, but we believe, you know, we have, you know, um, conviction that the technology here is, is genuinely fascinating and genuinely different and going to be hard for anybody else to do. And at that kind of, you know, in that kind of case, we can, you know, we can take an interest.
0: Cool. Well, thanks for your time. And uh, till next time, guys. Bye.
1: Thank you.